Hello, everyone. I'm Brad Gray, and welcome to the Teaching Series Podcast. I am a follower of Jesus, and I find the Bible to be absolutely amazing and love helping people experience it anew. Because in my 12 plus years of teaching the Bible professionally, I've learned that most of us have never been taught how to engage the Bible the way it was intended in its original context, and we are missing out on so much. Because when the biblical text is set in its context, it becomes more relevant, compelling, and transformational than we ever imagined. My desire is for all people to experience the Bible this way and to see Jesus at the center of it all. It's to this end that I created the teaching series, which is a weekly video series that explores some aspect of the Bible in its original context and then talks through how we can apply it well to our own context. This podcast is the audio version of those highly visual video teachings, which can be found at walkingthetext.com. So if you find an episode particularly helpful, I'd encourage you to check out the video version as well. And please feel free to rate and review this podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and let's jump into the episode. Friends, hello there. Christmas is coming soon. We are now in the season of Advent. Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. Christmas this year is on a Tuesday. So Advent began last Sunday, as in a couple days ago, if you're watching this on the release date, December 2, and it's over the next four weeks. And so I've put together a four-part series that I will reveal the title in just a few moments that's going to take us through this Advent season. Now, the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. And it's not just the coming or arrival of something, it's the coming or arrival of something long anticipated. So Advent is about anticipation, it's about longing, it's about hope. It's about being reminded that God sent His Son into the world, but it's also this anticipation that God will do something new in our story this Christmas season. And so for the next four teachings, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1. And so I want to look at the Christmas story through the lens of Matthew and particularly chapter 1. And I've been really, really pumped about this series for a number of weeks now because what Matthew does is so utterly fascinating. Now, here is a graphic of the entire Bible that comes from a teaching I did called The Restoration of All Things. You can find it in the sermon library. It's 73 minutes from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And I just show you this because I just want to continue to be reminded of what the whole storyline is and was. Because for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is what they had. And now they're going to tell the story of Jesus. And each of these four biographers on the life of Jesus had to figure out how they were going to tell the story of Jesus. How were they going to tell the epic story about the greatest moment in human history, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ that began with his birth. It culminated with the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and it brought to fruition everything that had been happening before that. Now, Mark begins a certain way, Luke begins a certain way, John begins a certain way, and Matthew does as well. So, just for a moment, if you were tasked with putting together, right, the story or retelling the story of the greatest story in human history, 
Like, how would you begin this story? How would you get your audience roped into it? Well, this is what Matthew did. When he wants to tell the most significant story in human history, this is how he starts. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab. Let's go to the King James Version. Abinadab begat Nashon, Nashon begat Salmon, Salmon begat Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz begat Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed begat Jesse, and... Je Oh, man, let's just stop for a moment, right? Stop the bleeding. Like this has got to be the most boring way to begin a massive, epic, significant story like Jesus. And you look at this and you go, Matthew, what are you doing? Why would you begin this way? Uh, not long ago, I watched one of the recent James Bond films, like the most recent series with Daniel Craig. And what just fascinates me is that in each of these in the newest James Bond series is that the moment the story begins, like you are thrown into the action, like it is a car chase and things are blowing up and you're like already tense and you're like, okay, that's how you begin a story. That's a James Bond beginning. Matthew, come on, dude. Seriously, why? not have a James Bond beginning. Well, friends, this is a James Bond beginning. That from our Western contextual world, we would look at this and go, what are you doing? Like, seriously, you could not begin with something more boring than a genealogy. And yet, in an Eastern context, in a Jewish context, this is utterly explosive. It is a James Bond beginning. You see, in many parts of the world, even still today, as it was in Jesus' day, a genealogy talked about your rights. It talked about what your inheritance stream is. It talked about your identity, what your calling was, what authority you had. And to the Jewish people, genealogies were incredibly, incredibly significant. And so when Matthew begins, he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he goes on. And what's utterly astounding is he begins in this first part here in Matthew chapter one, talking about how Jesus is a son of David. And then he says, a son of Abraham. And then in order to prove the genealogy and how the genealogy ties itself up in verse 17, it's the rest of chapter one that proves the genealogy. And we see that Jesus is a son of Joseph. And what's more, Jesus is the son of God. And so over these next four weeks, this is what we're going to look at. This is our four-part series right here. And I'm just entitling this series Christmas Genealogy or Genealogy Christmas. You can say it either way. But I want to look at this Genealogy Christmas to understand exactly what Matthew is doing because it is utterly astounding. Now, 
we're going to do in the rest of this teaching, talking about how he is a son of David. Now, just prior to this, he says that Jesus, the Messiah, and some of your translations say Jesus Christ. And so I just want to do this very briefly because this is connected to the idea of the son of David. But some of your translations will say Jesus Christ. Some of them will say Jesus, the Messiah. And some people are like, okay, why is that distinction there? And for some people, like Jesus Christ, when they first become like a follower of Jesus, they think that's his first name and that's his last name. Uh, Christ is a title. Messiah is a title. And so this is how it gets played out into our translations. In Greek, in the New Testament, where it says Christ, if you will, it's Christos, and it's how we translate it as Christ. The reason why some of them use the word Messiah, even though in the Greek it's Christos, it's because the Hebrew is the word Mashiach, and this connects to the rest of the story, or the whole Hebrew scripture story, and this is the word Messiah, and they both mean the exact same thing. It means the anointed one. Now, in the Hebrew scriptures, there are other Mashiachs, if you will. There are other anointed ones. Kings were anointed. Leaders were anointed. Foreign rulers were called God's anointed in the Hebrew scriptures. But there was one anointed one, like capital A, capital O. This is the Messiah. This is the one who was to come that's connected to this whole story. People looking and hoping and anticipating this person coming at some point in the future. And this was considered the son of David, that the Messiah was a son of David, that he was coming to do God's will and God's way in connection to the promises of David. So we need to talk about David very quickly. David was the second monarch of Israel following King Saul. And at the end of David's life, he wanted to build a temple to God. But God goes, nope, that's not going to be for you. That's going to be for your son. And so, but God makes a promise in 2 Samuel 7 to David through the prophet Nathan. So God speaking through Nathan says to David here in 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 13, the Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up for your offspring, or excuse me, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God makes this promise to David that this will be in connection to his son of David. Start literally with his son, which will be Solomon, but this extends on to a future descendant of David who will rule and reign from David's throne. We see this also in Isaiah chapter 9. Good Christmas passage, verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of of peace, Prince of Shalom. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So that's in Isaiah. 
And then in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that he doesn't understand and David interprets it. And the interpretation talks about these four kingdoms that will arise, including Babylon, which Nebuchadnezzar is the king of. And in verse 44, David says this, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. So the kingdom is referenced, enduring forever is referenced, and we see that this prophecy of Daniel that's taking place while King Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon says there will be four nations, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Rome is ruling the world at the time Jesus is born. And so what we see here is that when Matthew introduces Jesus onto the scene, he's saying, no, this is the fulfillment of everything as that has been promised, promised through David. And again, the genealogy proves this identity. And you go, well, Matthew, how are you proving it? Well, interestingly, Matthew divides this genealogy into three groupings. And you go, well, where's that? It's in verse 17. So read the first 16 verses when you're able to. And at the end of the genealogy, it says this. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So we have here 14, 14, 14. And you go, Matthew, why are you telling us this? Now, here's what's fascinating, is that if you were to look at this genealogy, go back to the Hebrew scriptures and look at the genealogies there, you would go, a couple of dudes are missing in the genealogy. Now, for a Western context, we would go, well, did the Bible make a mistake? That just doesn't seem right. That's just not literal. Like, what's going on? But from an Eastern perspective, this was a totally normal thing to do. Because a genealogy was intended to prove a point, to establish something. And Matthew didn't add anybody into the genealogy who wasn't in the genealogy, but he didn't include everybody because he's very specific about wanting to demonstrate 14, 14, 14. And you go, what is up with this 14? Well, we have something in the ancient world called gematria. And gematria is assigning numerical value to letters to derive meaning from words, names, and phrases. And I would submit to you, as other scholars do as well, that this is what's going on in Matthew chapter 1. Now you go, well, is this a later tradition? Like, how do we know if this was even existence by the time Matthew is doing what he's doing? Great question, if for those of you who may have that question. So let me show you one of the earliest instances we have. It's from the 8th century BC. This is the Assyrian king Sargon II. He ruled from 722 to 707 BC. And we have an inscription that states that the king built the wall of Khorsabad. So this is in part of his kingdom. 16,283 cubits long to correspond with the numerical value of his name. So this was not only something that was going on with the Hebrew language, this was going on with other languages in the ancient world as well. Now let me show you how 14 factors in 
Because again, Matthew is proving who Jesus is through the genealogy, and he starts off by saying this is a son of David. David in Hebrew is just three words. It's Dalit Vav Dalit. Now, there are no vowels in Hebrew. We hear the vowel sounds, and I've supplied the A and the I for David there for us, but it's just three consonants. And the numerical value for Dalit is four, Vav is six, and since we have another doll four, you go, well, of course, that equals 14. And so you see that what he is doing is he's connecting even the breakdown between Abraham and David, David in the exile, exile and Messiah, through the number 14. And just in case we're not picking up on what he is doing, in his genealogy, he lists these 15 kings. But only one is actually called King David, even though they're all kings. Matthew is highlighting for us that he's structuring this whole genealogy in connection to David to prove Jesus's identity and now his authority in what he is going to do. And so these 14 connected to David's name... And the way that he breaks it down also parallels David's story. So from Abraham to David, we have the origin and rise of the Davidic kingdom. But from David to the exile, we see this decay and downfall of the Davidic kingdom. But then from the exile culminating with Jesus the Messiah, we see this amazing news of the restoration of the Davidic kingdom. And so when Matthew says Jesus is a son of David, he's making this bold proclamation that Jesus the Messiah or Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant for the Jews. The fulfillment of everything God had been doing leading up to that moment, Jesus was that fulfillment for the Jewish people, the hopes and dreams they had of a coming Messiah who would rule and reign on David's throne. Now, what's utterly fascinating to me about this is that what this also tells us about God, and we see this all the way back in 2 Samuel 7, God goes, I'm going to establish a kingdom. In Daniel chapter 2, listen, I'm going to establish a kingdom. Okay, here's Isaiah 9. He does that as well. Daniel chapter 2. And then also, let me just show you one more. This is from Paul, Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That this phrase, fullness of time, this is so unbelievably huge because God is redeeming this entire story that what was shattered in the garden of the Shalom, like God is working through Israel and he works through the monarchy and he makes his promise and he affirms in Isaiah chapter 9 and in Daniel chapter 2 and then in Galatians 4.4 at that moment where that fourth kingdom is ruling on the world stage, Rome, Paul says when this fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And you look at all the hundreds of years of people hoping and anticipating and longing, and it probably felt like God was late and that God wasn't showing up at all. And yet at the right time, Jesus enters on to the scene. And friends, I would just simply say this, God is never early. God is never late. God is always right on time. That for me, this is one of the things that gives me hope in the Advent season. 
That as I long and as I anticipate the coming of Jesus and celebrating that, but even more since Jesus has already come, and yes, we're remembering that, but, but I long and anticipate things in my own life, I'm reminded that God doing what God does is not contingent upon my time frame. It's contingent upon His. And that He's never early. He's never late. God is always right on time. And what this whole storyline from today's teaching reminds us of is that this is a God who makes good on His promises. That He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't go back on His word. That He knows what He is doing. And that for the Jewish people, they struggled to understand how Jesus was the fulfillment of their longings because it didn't meet their expectations. And friends, oftentimes that's what happens when we struggle with God is that we have certain expectations of what we believe God should do, and yet God doesn't do it, and we find ourselves discouraged. Uh, When I started off this teaching and I talked about that Advent is a season of longing and anticipation, like, what are you longing for? What are you anticipating? What are you hoping God does this Christmas season? And I would tell you to hold on to that, to, 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 to hold on to it, but not so tightly that basically you say, God, if you don't do this, well, or else, right? That there's a sense of we ask for what we want. We long for certain things, but we also need to be reminded this Christmas season that God is never early. God is never late. God is always right on time. And God may meet our expectations. God may not. That it may seem like God is late in our life right now with something that is going on. Friends, He's not. He may not respond the way that we desire, But friends, don't lose sight of the fact that he will respond and he will do it in his time. And it will be bigger than what we can even imagine that God was doing all of these other things. Even in our circumstances right now, we may not be able to understand what's going on. That God is a God who makes good on his word. He is working behind the scenes. He is working in the foreground. He's working in the background. He's working in my life. He is working in yours. And I would just maybe ask you, how do you need to trust God anew this season? That how do you need to be reminded that this is true of God and trust Him anew in the midst of this Advent season? Uh, Friends, as my friend Doug Greenwald said last year around this time, he wrote something that he sent out to people who are connected to him, and I love it, and I just want to share this with you as a way to end. He just says, Rejoice as we prepare to celebrate the coming of the fullness of time yet again. Rejoice even as we continue to wait with fulfilled corporate and personal longing and relax. God knows what he's doing and the perfection of his nature ensures he will, he will never make a mistake in your life or mine. Again, I say rejoice. It's Advent. I could not say it better myself. And that's why I wanted to end with that. So friends, celebrate this Advent season. I hope it's a wonderful season for you as you go through this with friends and family. And as you do so, may you experience God anew. May you walk out this text well in your life. And may you celebrate well the coming of Jesus Christ. (laughs) 